Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? Doing, doing good. I can't believe we're this far into the show already. Like, this is astounding. I am consistently amazed, especially since we haven't even started airing season two. No, we've got one episode of season two. Oh, one episode. Okay. Okay, because that makes a difference. Um, (laughs) As someone who has lost, I don't know, who has lost at least two years of their life to uh, the panic caused by realizing you have not queued up or finished editing the episode until like six hours before it's it's due to go live um, on my other podcasts, uh, the fact that we are like, a year ahead in backlog on this podcast never ceases to amuse and slightly uh, horrify me for some reason. I, I think it's it's just buck wild that we are just plowing so far so speedily ahead in our recordings. Uh, but as I think Anna pointed out uh, on our Discord uh, this week to Zathras, that it's not so much that Zathras is slow at editing. Um, when he complained about being behind us, that uh, we are just very consistent about needing our weekly therapy yeah, uh, in the form yeah. of Babylon 5. Recording three hours of Babylon 5 content per week has become like a, a coping mechanism. It really has. God, what what does that say about us? <laughs> it <laughs> yeah, says I don't only know. good things, Justin. It says only good things because we are classy people. Listen, Who'd like I, to talk I, about classy things. I got my first shot. Like the like, Nocturne like, Theater. <laughs> you want to know what's pathetic? Like, I got my first shot, which means that I'm probably going to be able to start going out to, like, you know, do stuff. Do you know what probably one of my first, like, going out, like, doing things with other people is? Probably it's going to be going over to somebody's house and watching Babylon 5. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, hate that's good. Thing. All right. Um, tonight, this is it. This is the big one. This is the podcast without end. Yeah, I don't have an intro. I don't have an intro bit today for this because I um, lost enough sanity doing the summary that well, this is going to get real loopy. The best I- kind of recording. Yeah, I want to say before we start it, I just want to real quickly going into this episode. This was like, this is one of like the watershed episodes mm-hmm. for the series. This is like a major breakpoint in terms of. The narrative, in terms of character arcs, once Justin watched this episode, we stopped stopped making them take off their headphones all the time. Like <laughs> this is this is a big episode. This two parter. So uh, I just want to recognize, like, it's not just a, a like a long episode or like a halfway point episode or whatever else it is. It's a real turning point in the series. I mean, it's kind of got everything. Like, it's got world building, it's got character building, it's got the the conclusion and a really nice conclusion to a character arc. It's got mm-hmm. a time heist. You know the one thing it doesn't have? Jakar. 
Oh, oh yes. Uh, Jakar doesn't, doesn't have any lines, but Jakar has a nice moment. He has a nice moment. No lines, but a nice moment. Uh, and also no dicks. There are there are no. Well, I have some feelings about uh, the keeper, but we'll get there. The uh, yeah, I like like everybody. Everybody gets a good character moment in this episode, except maybe Lanier. I think that's just because there's so much going on here. But like everybody yeah. gets a nice character moment in it. Just a disclaimer for the listeners. I hate time travel. Like I, as I've as I've gotten older, I've just discovered that I hate time travel. <laughs> like <laughs> I, it gets so confusing. And you know what's even worse? Trying to write a summary that involves time travel. So I've tried to summarize this co- episode's content in somewhat in the order they are presented on screen. Towards the end of this, we're like we're gonna it's gonna break down. Um, just, I have to, like, I had to, like, separate out some stuff for, like, narrative cohesion. And, but we'll, we'll burn those bridges when we get to them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always interesting to think about the, our different approaches to summarizing, because I throw episode scene order completely out the window and just, like, structure things in what seems logical to me. I go with whichever order lets me rant the best. Entirely based on rant. <laughs> ranting is my priority as per usual on the show we are going to be covering two episodes tonight those are episodes 18 and 19 of season three war without end parts one and two written by j michael straczynski and directed by mike vehar on both episodes our good old buddy mike vehar yeah he's done like four out of the last five here we are the big one there is no going back the two-parter that made me scream into the void for several minutes upon watching it. But we do not have anything else to be done tonight. Uh, it is 90 minutes of television, we've got, a po- we've got a podcast to do, and it is time for Pod Without End. We start off on Midbar, which gives us some great stained glass or stained crystal windows. Uh, we get to see Ranger One, our old buddy Jeffrey Sinclair, who is approached by someone who is sent to tell Sinclair that they had specific orders from the sacred texts to open a box. Surprise. No, it's not a dick. It's a letter, in fact, which has been sealed for 900 years, and it is addressed to Jeffrey David Sinclair. The Minbari priest, uh, whose name is Rathen, asks, how did he know that Sinclair would be here? And how did he know Sinclair's name? Back on Babylon 5, they're picking up a distress call, but it's not coming from a ship. It's coming from Sector 14. Da, da, da. We remember sec- Sector 14. That's back at uh, Babylon Squared. Mm-hmm. It is a message from Ivanova. The station is being overrun. People are being slaughtered. But when? Back on Minbar, Sinclair's ship is being repaired. The priest notes that Sinclair is disturbed and asks if he can provide assistance about the contents of the letter. Sinclair refuses to share the details. He thanks Rathen for his work and that the two of them have built something greater than either of them. As Sinclair leaves, Rathen says that he feels like this is the last time that he will see Sinclair. A Vorlon who was just like straight up creeping in the background says that (laughs) Sinclair is the closed circle and he is returning to the beginning. That's some extra-ass Vorlon shit right there. Yeah, this this Vorlon gets no introduction. He just appears. Uh, He is voiced by the same voice, like, the same actor who does all the Vorlons. 
Yeah. Just a different voice modulation, but it's, yeah. And uh, in a different, like, Vorlon costume. Yeah. This one's a little bit more angular. Yeah, this one is very, like, goth, and it has, like, it has, like, a big, like, crest, like, circular crest thing on the back, and it's got a red eye. Yeah, I was gonna say, he looks like he's got a, uh, uh, what you call it? It looks like he's got a handle on, on top. Because that's what I, every time I see him, I think, I, I feel like I want to reach down and just grab the top of his encounter suit and shake. And see what, see what comes out. Some loose change. Yeah. Spiritual change. Back in the war room at the CPK table of Alliance, Ivanova <laughs> says that she's never sent that distress call. Garibaldi notes that maybe she hasn't yet. And maybe the signal is from the future. Garibaldi remembers his future vision from their visit to Babylon 4, where the station was being assaulted. Garibaldi asks permission to leave to check out Sector 14, which is granted. Garibaldi, get off the station. I have, I have one, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not even going to pretend to not interrupt this summary. <laughs> Ivanova, it gets short shrift in this scene because she's like, I don't understand. I've never said this distress call. It's like, you've already established this is coming from like the the timey wimey zone. Why are you acting surprised? That, like you've all, this isn't even the first distress call from from like a different time that you've gotten. This is like you're. It's it's. it's My like, theory with this is is that unlike characters in Star Trek who have to deal with a time travel episode every season, like and have to like actually take courses on like how to do a time travel i just figure that earth hasn't had to deal with this and so that people's brains don't immediately jump to time travel i guess that's fair yeah no, i mean like uh, if you if you've got like occam's razor of like time travel versus deep fake which are you gonna go with that's fair that's valid i don't know i just feel like you get a distress call clearly the station's never been destroyed before so yes Thank you for pointing out the obvious, Ivanova. We we realize you've never sent this distress call. And it's coming from the other place where a distress call came from that nobody remembered from out of time. I don't know. I feel like that's el- elementary. And also, I reject the idea. I, I, I'm, I'm coming to a new point. I reject the idea that these motherfuckers need special training. If I can figure this out, <laughs> don't tell me like these, these idiots don't watch Star Trek. Like, there's no way there's not, like, science fiction TV on Babylon 5. They've probably got buckwild science fiction TV on on Babylon 5. There's no way that, like, their science fiction plots are not ten times dumber than the ones we've dealt with. (laughs) There's no way Ivanova cannot grasp the concept of time travel as, as a possible culprit. Ivanova's too smart to fucking need to, like... What could it be? I've never sent this message. She's she's being set up as a, uh, what do you call it? A mouthpiece for exposition. And she's better than that. That's what Corwin's for. Give Corwin <laughs> the, the idiot line and let Ivanova do the explaining. Don't make Garibaldi be the, be the person that explains shit to Ivanova. That's contrary to all reason, logic, and morality. Right, I, mean, you I'm done. I mean, you could have just had Sheridan. Yeah, make Sheridan be the dummy. Sher- yeah. I, Bingo. Bingo. Sheridan wasn't there for the last time travel, and he's already a little bit of a dummy. So he absolutely would have been like, it could be ghosts. It could be a secret mission. It could be deep. I mean, they've already dealt with they've already dealt with a ghost from Sector 14. Yeah, it could be that alien that was living in my brain for a week. (laughs) See, when are they gonna let us reboot this show? We could do this scene so much better. 
Okay, I'm sorry. Continue. We're going to go back. So we go to customs where we get our mystery visitor of the week. It is Jeffrey Sinclair himself. The the scene where the, we get we get the we get it as like a little bit of a surprise reveal uh, where where Zach Allen uh, like swipes the ID card, recognizes who's on it, and looks up, and it's Sinclair. And from the music, the way the camera is shot, and just the tone of Michael O'Hare's voice, there is something cathartic and joyful in that moment. There really is. Yeah. If I ever get to ask JMS something, I will ask if he knows which scene was shot first. There's this energy in O'Hare at that moment. When we first watched it together, and then on my rewatch for the summary, I cried both times. And I feel like this is going to be something that I cry every time I watch this episode. Yeah. He has, he has like this kind of genuine fondness in his face and voice for a security guy who we would have known for like one week, right? Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It's, it's like Zach is the audience surrogate there and like we're all feeling Sinclair's love for us. Yeah. He's back. I also want to point out that he, They've aged him up a little bit here. So he he has a, they've like grayed his hair a little bit and they've sort of enhanced sort of the, like the wrinkled texture to his face and it looks good on him. He looks very, what's the word? He's I got want? a scar. He looks very distinguished. That's the word. Yeah, the, That's exactly the, scar, the word I was aiming for. The scar is for. interesting. He looks very distinguished, mm-hmm. but then he steps onto the station and there's a brightness to him that I have a suspicion is... As much Michael O'Hare feeling good about being back on that set as it is about Sinclair being back on Babylon 5. That is really, really good. JMS has a note that before they they, they before they did the shoot for War Without End, they had a prep day. And JMS had lunch with Boxlitner and O'Hare uh, the day before, I think, with one of the producers as well. And he just remembers it as a very joyful day. Like, they didn't know it, but they found out that Boxlitner and O'Hare had uh, done a play together at one point. Oh, cool. And so and so they were like, and they were reminiscing about that. And it, it's, and the JMS speaks for this episode. It just like, is something that I picked out. It was just like, oh, that's it's really nice. Yeah. Uh, Zach asks if Sinclair will be staying long, and the former commander replies that that's a far more interesting question than you think. This cryptic <laughs> motherfucker. He's um, definitely learned how to talk like a Midbari. Or a Vorlon. Garibaldi departs the station to Star Fury to go check things out. Lanier visits Delenn in her quarters, and Delenn already knows that Sinclair is there. Uh, she lights a candle and recites the mantra of the Great Council. She knows that something will happen, and she wants more time. But time is all they have. The camera pans, and we see a letter addressed to Delenn. In the same handwriting, it should be noted. In the war room, Marcus and Sheridan talk about the state of the war. The shadows have put a pause on their assault. Delenn enters the war room, and she tells them both that they must come to the White Star immediately. Ivanova, too, and one other. Right on cue, Sinclair strides in on a cool-ass cloak that is just fucking Jedi Master levels of swag. Yeah. Uh, Greetings are exchanged and Garibaldi reports in. The temporal rift in Sector 14 has grown, and the cause is a tachyon beam being transmitted 
from Epsilon 3, you know, that planet that has a big machine on it that Babylon 5 orbits. We cut to... Jesus Christ. Who let Zathras out of the editing booth? There there are multiple Zathras. Zathrai. And who who let him clone himself? (laughs) We we do not. This is... uh, We're going to have to call pest control. Uh, But something is wrong with the great machine. There is a time field being created. And... If Troll loses control, everyone will die. Back on the station, Delenn impresses the urgency that they leave now, and Sheridan agrees to go. Uh, Sheridan remarks on the outbound shuttle that Sinclair's visit is a bit of a surprise. Sinclair replies that there wasn't much time, and that this is a surprise to him too. When Sheridan says that's well, quite the coincidence, Sinclair replies that there are no coincidences. Marcus teases both commanders about how hard it is to get a straight answer out of Ranger 1. <laughs> Garibaldi is able to get more out of the rift, and he gets a video message. The station has been boarded, and everything has gone to hell. Garibaldi's rigged the fusion reactor to blow. An entire f- shadow fleet is coming, and the message is cut off when the shadow fleet destroys the station. On the White Star, the crew all gathers, and Delenn asks the most important question she has ever asked John. If he trusts her, uh, John replies that he trusts her with his life. Delenn has them sit and begins. She explains that the last great war against the Shadows was a thousand years ago, and they were able to defeat them with the help of other races, including the Vorlons. But they had one secret piece of help. During the war, the Minbari's most important starbase had been destroyed, crippling their supply lines, but a replacement arrived in their hour of their greatest need. She shows them a image of that replacement station. It's Babylon 4! The station was taken into the distant past to win the war against the Shadows. John questions that the Minbari stole Babylon 4, but it turns out they did. Will. Are. Going. To. And the they here is not the Minbari, it's everyone on the command staff here. Yeah. Yeah. Drawl shows them a record of Babylon 4's disappearance. Several shadow ships attempted to destroy the station, but the ship that stopped them was the White Star. All right, folks, we're going back in time. They're going to save the station, then steal it. And now here is time for the bit. Heist, 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 heist. (laughs) Delenn explains that without Babylon 4 being taken into the past, the last war would have ended in a stalemate, leaving the Shadows with far more vessels, and will allow them to start the next war on a stronger footing and destroy Babylon 5. When Sheridan questions how they know all this, Sinclair says that his information comes from a reliable source. Uh, Delenn warns that if they do not act, the possible future with B5's destruction will happen in eight days, which is confirmed by Garibaldi. Sheridan agrees to this, and they start to make preparation. Lanier says that a ship is approaching, and Delenn orders the ship to be allowed to dock. It has Drawl's technology that will allow them to move Babylon 4 through time. Drawl is not here to supervise it, unfortunately. Zathras is. (laughs) <laughs> Upon seeing Sinclair, Zathras has a reaction, says he is very honored to meet him. Realizing that their first meeting was in Sinclair's past and Zathras's future, Sinclair instructs Zathras not to say anything that might change the past, future... Oh my god, I'm opening a bottle of whiskey here. I hate time travel. I, I love this scene, too, because 
is it is it Sheridan? So Zathra says that he has a a list of things that he's not supposed to tell them. Yeah, and Sheridan is like, "What's on that list?" And Zathras is like, "I cannot remember, but if I remember, I'll tell you." <laughs> it's it's yeah. a really good comedic bit. Yeah, this whole thing, uh, just this section here is so bananas because this episode goes from like. Oh, Sinclair's back. This is nice. To like, oh shit. Like, they just fucking slam on the gas so hard as yeah. soon as Sinclair hits the station, which is fantastic. They're, mm-hmm. And they're like revealing stuff, and you're like, dang, this is intense. And then, like, future you is just like, <laughs> you don't even know. This episode is just, uh, I mean, it's just a barn burner. Yeah. It just takes off. I love that they stole B4 and took it into the past. And it kind of explains why the Minbari kept funding them. <laughs> it's, it, the the great money laundering scandal of the Babylon project has finally yeah, been explained. It turns, yeah, it turns out that the Minbari just have this note that's like, there have to be five. And the Minbari are like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> But it's like they've got this handwritten this handwritten envelope that's like there's got to be five. Sorry, the, the Great Council has you know secret instructions from uh, from the deep deep past that say when when you encounter an alien species called humans and they build cylindrical space stations, you must continue to give them money. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and don't worry about the war of genocide thing. Well, that'll ex- be explained later. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the crew gets hurries to get underway. Sinclair stops Sheridan and tells them that on their way up, they're going to need a favor. That favor is Sheridan ordering Garibaldi back to the station, which overall, loving this. Yeah, yeah. When Sheridan asks why, and if he wanted to say anything to Garibaldi, Sinclair says that he wanted it more than you'll ever know. I mean, th- this, this, I have to say, I have to say, this makes me, is always, that particular line always makes me wonder if there was like something deeper there between those two at some point. I, yeah, I mean, that one line is real gay. And the, and the delivery on it too. That's what I mean. Like that delivery is, there's a lot of yearning in that line. That relationship has never made a fucking lick of sense to me. Um, yeah, <laughs> Sinclair is this like contemplative, considering guy, and then you have like the fascist, and you have like this has to be one of those like fought in a war together, but brothers in blood kind of things wh- where yeah, like a you know we shed blood together, so now we're bonded kind of things. Because I don't understand what makes two men, l- l- two people gender irrespective two people as different in such fundamental personality ways as these two bond as tightly as these two are bonded i yeah i really feel that it's it's one of those things where there are people who are entirely different walks of life but for them intersecting on what is a very pivotal moment for both of them and forming this weird friendship that I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but I mean, yeah. it's 
it's enough that like Sinclair handpicks him uh, to join B5. And, and part of that is uh, Sinclair trying to pull Garibaldi out of his own shithole. I feel like it might be also something where, I mean, we know that Sinclair always sees the best in people. He is kind of a, a pathological optimist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, look at Deathwalker, where he's like, well, no, something good could come out of it. Um, so I wonder if it's something where he sees the best in Garibaldi, because there there have been good Garibaldi moments, granted yeah. very few and far between. You know what it is? Sinclair is Arthur. And Garibaldi, for all his faults, is one of his knights. Mm-hmm. And Garibaldi follows Sinclair. That like the dynamic there is very much to me of a devoted soldier to his leader. Like Garibaldi is very much a like devoted scion to a leader. There's very much like a messianic quality to the to me to the way Garibaldi looks at Sheridan. And like honestly, Sheridan or Sinclair? <laughs> sorry, Sinclair, not Sheridan. Sinclair. For Sinclair, I think he's. I think for him, Garibaldi is one of the people he's taken responsibility for. This is one of his people. Yeah, he saw something in Garibaldi worth t- worth saving, and he's made him one of his people. And I think yeah. that's just part of who he is. And that, that tracks. Yeah, he's the person like like he sees in Garibaldi the the person who wants to protect people, the inquisitive person. Yeah. I I think is somebody who ignores those faults. Not not ignores them, but like tries to minimize them. I think um, it's not at all surprising that the best of Garibaldi that we see is when Garibaldi is trying to save Franklin mm-hmm. in the same way that he, Sinclair saved Garibaldi. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's accidental. For sure. That when he is trying to act like Sinclair did, he is at his very best. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Maneuvering (laughs) us back on, Zathras hands out uh, time stabilizers, which are meant to act as anchors to protect uh, the crew from time distortions and keep them anchored in time. Sheridan orders Lanier and the White Star into the rift. Once they're out, they're able to track the Shadow Fighters with the explosive fusion bomb they are escorting. That seems fine. Garibaldi, <laughs> in the present, returns to the station, only to find out that he missed Sinclair. He has a message from Sinclair, but it's password locked. He is able to figure it out that it's the phrase, Hello, old friend. Sinclair apologizes for missing him, but he couldn't have Garibaldi come along because, well, Sheridan won't be coming back. And if he went, Garibaldi wouldn't make it back either. Back in time, the White Star engages the Shadow Fighters. They're able to detonate the fusion bomb, but the station and the White Star are both within blast range. The blast also hits John's temporal stabilizer and Sheridan disappears, unstuck in time. That CGI in that scene is so bad. It's real bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Sinclair takes command, saying that they need to press on. They can try to recover Sheridan as they uh, work, but they have to save the future first. The blast knocked out Babylon Four sensors, and so they at least have uh, uh, the cover of stealth as Sinclair 
orders them in. We then cut to Sheridan, who is getting the shit kicked out of him on some rather opulent carpets. Those which belong to... By God, that's Emperor Londo Malari! <laughs> An aged Londo welcomes uh, Sheridan back from the abyss, just in time to die. So one note I want to point out here that I went into Lurker's Guide to Verify. My impression when I watched this episode was that he had, like, drifted forward in time into his future self. But this apparently was a controversial opinion. A lot of people I talked to were like, no, he like he disappeared from the past. So clearly he appeared in the future. And th- my response to that was, what, did his spacesuit turn into a sort of generic 90s leather jacket? Like, <laughs> please riddle me this. What, like, what, ha- like, what do you please explain the, the, the ugly leather coat for me? And the fact that Delenn is not like, where the fuck did you come from? Although she kind of is. But no, uh, on the Lurker's guide page, JMS is like, I thought that was very clear from the fact that his fucking clothes change. That, like, he has gone into his future self and not, like, transubstantiated across time. Like, he's just in his future self. So, if you are confused, as were my friends who were wrong, uh, (laughs) then, yes, it is not him going forward in time. He is like John Carter of Marzine, his brain into his future self. Hashtag time travel. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> like, this is exactly what we saw before. Or yeah. B squared. Yeah. 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 Uh, back in the. It's not the present. It's. The, so back in the past, uh, the White Star grapples on to B4. But as they dock, Delette expresses worry about Sheridan. Sinclair comforts her, saying that he knows what comes next. Sinclair talks about how he always had doubts about who he is or where he belonged. But now, he's like the arrow that springs from the bow, lacking any doubt or hesitation. The path before him is clear. The delivery is so good on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Clearly, he's also been, yeah, he's been reading a lot of uh, Zen manuals because he's, like, dropping classic Zen zingers. Like every third scene here. Uh, not that I'm complaining. They're good. I'm just saying he's like. he He's talking. He's got like the Minbari aphorism machine cranked up to 11 <laughs> once they start time traveling. Back in the future, Londo tells Sheridan that he is going to be disposed of for the crime of neglect of letting the shadows roost on Centauri Prime. Londo shows him the cityscape of the capital where fires rage and ruin is everywhere saying that this is the legacy of the Shadow War. Back on Babylon 4, everyone springs into action, and Sinclair asks Delenn if she's ready. Delenn notes that humans only ask if people are ready if they're about to do something incredibly stupid. Sinclair clarifies that this is tradition. (laughs) And that is the end of part one. We're halfway done with this, folks. (laughs) This is a buck-wild episode. It is. Yeah. But this is where the good stuff starts. Like, it really starts cooking now. I absolutely adore an upcoming scene here. And I'm sure you know which one I'm thinking of. <laughs> I can, like, think of, like, two or three. But <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I know which one it is. Yeah. Part two opens with Londo, who is berating Sheridan for abandoning his people to the shadows. When Sheridan asks what year it is, Londo 
eventually responds that it is 17 years since Sheridan began his crusade. Londo coughs, and he says he is tired, and orders Sheridan taken back to a cell, and that he must make his peace with whatever gods he worships. Back in the past, Babylon 4's commander is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. This poor motherfucker. I feel so bad for him. He's got a really unfortunate mustache, early <laughs> male pattern balding, and he has experienced two of the absolute most confusing time travel horseshit experiences, and no one ever explains it to him. This poor, this poor fuck is t- twice momentous time travel-y future shit has happened and he's just there in the background like shit going on around him and he's just like what the fuck is happening i want to know what happens to this guy after he gets rescued from from babylon 4 and b squared right that is a book i would read i'm so happy that they got the same actor back though like (laughs) i'm so glad the fact that they got like pretty much like they got every actor who like actually mattered back for this was fantastic. Yeah, uh, like yeah, I just like I don't want like a full book on this dude. I would like I'd like like a single like like a one shot comic. There you go. Uh, just because uh, like I want to see this dude hang on to this horrible mustache. Well, you know what? I, I wouldn't even need a comic. It would be like two pages, and it would just be him. Like it's like they're showing up in like getting back to Earth Force and just being like. Well, this place has gone to shit. <laughs> I mean, it's, he gets back in season one, so it's not terrible. It's, I mean, it's, it's the next two years that's going to be the problem. Um, uh, and it's, and it's like they're trying to make him look dated. So they gave him, like, the, like, late 80s porno stash. <laughs> it's true. I, he does, does he even get a name? Or no, he gets a name. It's just it's it's not said in this episode. Yeah, it's like major something. He's not, and then poor dude isn't even like a commander. He's like a major. Yeah, no, which is <laughs> which is again our what what the fuck rank structure does Earth Force use? Yeah, yeah. Majors. There's a cur- Colonel Benzane. Yeah, poor. Yeah, it's basically just like a person clearly unfamiliar with how military works. Just <laughs> naming what what ranks have I heard in in military movies and just throwing darts at them for character titles. Gunnery Sergeant Garibaldi. Like, <laughs> I mean, Garibaldi's rank actually works, but yeah. we yeah. do not need to go down that tangent this evening. Yeah. Um, we have many other so, tangents. Yeah. So Marcus and Ivanova are down at the bowels of the station trying to search for a maintenance panel. But, uh, Marcus disappears mid sentence, like the goddamn Batman. <laughs> I love this scene so much. <laughs> and then some security forces show up. Uh, one of the guards gets distracted, and then Marcus drops from the ceiling. The like the goddamn th- Batman. Yeah, yeah. no, this, <laughs> the two of them dispatch the guards. When Ivanova asks how he knew the guards were going to show up, Marcus replies that with the pure D&D player logic of, well, this would be the worst time for the guards to show up, so it made sense for it to be now, so I hid. In it's, I, it's so good. I can't fault his logic. No, because like if you have ever played D anD D for more than like three sessions, you have heard somebody say those words and do that thing. 
he's like, like it's it's like the Marcus is the only one who's aware of like broader narrative structure because he's also the one who never says things like what's the worst that could happen unlike fucking Ivanova. Yeah, no, he I I love that scene so much because he's just like yeah, uh, every, Marcus is so is so good in this in that scene where he's just like. Uh, I just love it. Go on, please. The next <laughs> um, part's even better. Yeah, no, the next best part, in pure himbo magic of somebody spending his story point, he accidentally hits open a panel with his fighting pike that is exactly what they need. <laughs> yeah, no, it's this... so fucking... This boy just rolls 20s. Yeah, Marcus is just... Yeah, this is a character who is just having a good night with the dice. And just landing, like, this is a guy who, who it literally is just, like, rolls, like, well, this is obviously when they would attack, so I'm going to hide now. And the DM's like, that's not really, all, all right, they, yeah, they attack right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like just looks at the heads, well, okay. Yeah. No, it's, it's brilliant. I... <sighs> Bless Marcus. I yeah, just... it's it's my fa- it's, it's like my favorite little bit of this episode. It's like he he always toes the line of breaking the fourth wall. He never does, but yeah. he toes the line. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's almost as good as the one where he tell where uh, he's uh, basically doing a Three Stooges bit with his fighting bike uh, in in uh, what's it called? Exogenesis. Um, in yeah, in Exogenesis. Yeah. yeah. That's that's my favorite bullshit Marcus moment, but this is a close second. Back on Centauri Prime in the future, uh, Sheridan starts to float in his cell. He appears on B4 for a moment, then pops back. Meanwhile, the station Sinclair and Delenn find where they need to go, but they need a distraction. Delenn shudders, feeling an odd disturbance in the force. I mean, um, feeling like somebody walked over her grave. <laughs> uh, Sheridan goes back into the future where he is in a dark cell with Future Delenn Future Delenn says they know that they know she won't tell them anything so they're being allowed one last moment before the end apparently the shadows are romantics or the Centauri are you know okay that's a very, that's much more a Centauri thing to do it's yeah. like yeah before you are executed, you will get to have one last glorious moment with your beloved. With your six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where uh, I like to point out that Delenn looks literally no different except for uh, like a rogue style uh, gray streak in her hair. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, Sheridan just is wearing a leather coat. So apparently yeah. they age real gracefully. They're that hot older couple that's down to swing. Unlike Sinclair, who at the end of like a year and three quarters later has like a whole bunch of gray hair and a scar. Ranger living is tough life. Well, they they explain that, though. Well, no, no, no. Like when he appears on the station. Oh, yeah, no, but that's still explained. They they explain that as uh, when he came back through from Sector 14 or whatever, it screwed with his uh, with his aging. So he aged. He ages faster in in this timeline. In 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 this present, he ages faster. So he just like always ages faster. Yeah, because yeah. he he's the only person who had like direct contact with something that was time shifting. Yeah. Right, like a dumbass. Yeah. So 
Delan also says that despite this being the end, she wants John to know that their son, the fuck, their son is safe. <laughs> their son David is safe. Their son David, which um, is a hella pedestrian ass name until you pointed out that it's also Sinclair's middle name. Yeah, so I just yeah. figured, like, like I just, like, because, like, I figured that's why they had Sinclair's full name written on the letter. I hope to, so. Re- to I remind just, you. Because, I, like, that's the only way I would have remembered it, is, uh, is that I had, like, 45 minutes ago, I got to see his name written. Bless you for saying that, because I just thought it was because Sheridan was that much of a white person. <laughs> it, it would make, he, he would make his wife, aban- not just abandoned, but, like, hurl her entire culture into the garbage and name their son something like David. But it's it's nice. It's nice to think that he's named after Sinclair though. If you're yeah, if you're listening and your name is David, nothing personal. I'm just saying it's four centuries in the future and your mom's a Minbari and your name is David, like you 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 lost the 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 name lottery there. You could have been Machuck or <laughs> you know Lanier or any of a, of a of a thousand cool names and you got David Jakar Lanier Sheridan you were named after the two <laughs> coolest dudes I have ever known <laughs> you are named after the two guys I slept with before I mean <laughs> the two of them Sherry Kiss uh, much to John's confused delight, John tries to explain to Delenn his time travel. Delenn recognizes what's going on here, remembering that John had told her about this in the past, which honestly, great communication here about time travel. I feel like if I had a partner and we have this exact situation, I'd want to make sure that we were on the same page and that we like knew what we could and couldn't talk about in the future. So clearly, the message here is, have that conversation with your partner. Do you do you want children in the future? What is your safe word? What are you in, up for in bed? What are you comfortable talking about? Should one of you time travel into the future and then come back? <laughs> These are the things that our respon- a responsible couple talks about. Doesn't have to be a couple. Could be a throuple. Whatever. Uh, be sure to have these conversations with your romantic partners. A PSA from us here at the Babylon Project. <laughs> to you. I mean, you're right, but then also (laughs) time travel. (laughs) I mean, I would. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I would. I would just be like, "Hun, what's your what's your opinion on predestination paradoxes?" (laughs) I've had stranger conversations with my family. I I always wonder. I always wonder whether naming the son David is a predestination paradox. Yeah, no, I can't answer that because it's like by the end of this episode, he sort of earned it. Yeah, <laughs> like if you're like, like I think the fictional trope of like naming pe- naming children after like important people in your life is sort of like weird. Like I just, it's something that just doesn't click with me on like just a level. My family has like a shared middle name, but that's like that's not because there was an important person who had my middle name. It's just. So your your children won't be won't have like Marcus as a middle name. No, like I'm not going to be naming. I'm not going to be naming. Like I love you both, but I'm not going to be naming my children Jude and Anna. <laughs> well, fine, you can't have my name. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Be that um, one. Too cool of a name anyway. I'm not sharing. So Talen recognizes the innocence in John eyes that her John had lost so long ago. She also recognizes that John doesn't know what happened. They won the war, but there are always new battles to be fought against the darkness. The price for winning that war, however, was great and terrible. John asks if there is anything they can do to change the future, but Delenn warns him that the only other option is surrender, and that is too high a price. Delenn and Sheridan are taken to Londo, who is considerably drunk. Londo says that this is the only way they can be alone, and they do not wish to wake his keeper. Londo says he gave a very good performance earlier, and that it was satisfied. It only cares that Sheridan dies, but the keeper, well, it cannot hold its liquor. It recedes if he drinks enough for a few minutes, and he can take command. They do not have much time, though. Londo says he is close to death, and his world, his hopes are gone. Sheridan and Delenn are the last hope for the Centauri. There is a ship in the palace, and his guards will escort them there, in exchange for their help freeing his world. Londo hurries them away, and Sheridan and Delenn leave. Londo calls to someone who was eavesdropping. Jakar, wearing a sexy eye patch. Londo says that they won't make it out unless the Keeper does not come back. Otherwise, Hope will die. Londo says that they have unfinished business, and it is time for it to come to an end before the Keeper comes back. Jakar chokes Londo, but Jakar is not fast enough. The Keeper awakens, and Londo returns the choking grip. I feel like you left out the fact that the Keeper is a weird lump of tumory thing on... Londo's neck that has an eye with has a big old eye on it and tentacles that are like wrapped around his neck and when it wakes up literally the eye opens and it's like looking around and then Londo gets all aggro and then the choking goes from like a gentle romantic choke to a much more aggressive Different I don't know how I never noticed that. It's maybe because, like, maybe, like, my screen was too dark. That scene is not very well lit. But I did not notice that on either. Did you just Google what the Keeper <laughs> I is? I just Googled what this looked like, and I'm like, I don't see <laughs> Like, I didn't see this in either scene. Maybe it's just, like, my screen wow. is a lot of low brightness. Wild. This is, this is like. It's, it's ugly. Uh, and yeah, I would also like to point out, you didn't think I was going to find a way to work dicks into this episode. But here we are. <laughs> Uh, I would just like to to point something out. Um, the Keeper very obviously has tentacles. Uh, I feel like I don't need to uh, argue about that particular uh-huh. point. Imagine a world in which everything, instead of having tentacles, is covered in dicks. <laughs> this is the world the Centauri live in. <laughs> Imagine dying with a tumor... Covered in dicks, wrapped around your neck. This is Londo's fate to be strangled by a cyclopean dick tumor. There's a sentence I didn't think I'd ever say. While Jakar interrupting his romantic choke from Jakar. I'm just saying, I, my point is, I just want to point out that the, the, the Centauri live in a world where many, many things around them have tentacles, and to them, those are dicks. (laughs) And that has to have 
what kind of effect does that have on their psychology? Is that why they're so like they are? Because, like, everything's dicks? Good question. I'm just throwing that out there. As I, re- a general I really question just want to, like, throw an octopus at a Centauri and see how they feel about that. Right? Can you imagine if they go to a fucking Red Wings game and all of a sudden <laughs> there's just, like, <laughs> octopi hurling around they just screaming running screaming screaming from the arena dicks well i mean either that or they get turned on because there's eight good lord can you imagine (laughs) they come to earth and they're like there's eight (laughs) i i have a theory that like the centauri import enormous quantities of squid (laughs) <laughs> as an aphrodisiac <laughs> and it's it's just labeled like in centauri it's just labeled on the side of the boxes it's just like terran terran dick fish <laughs> terran octodick fish yeah octodick fish it's, a, oh, right. it, it's, it's an aphrodisiac delicacy as sharon and Dylan make their way back uh, no transition the there? You couldn't think of a way to transition <laughs> nope, from nope, nope. dick fish nope, to nope, time nope, travel? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and as Sheridan and Dylan make their way to launch I think I broke ship, Justin for a second. <laughs> Sheridan bowls over. He's being pulled through time again. Dylan tells him to treasure his moment, save for them for as long as he can. She pleads with him to not go to Zaha Doom before John vanishes. We get a long, lingering shot of Londo and Jakar dead next to each other someone comes and pick up picks up londo's necklace i, I don't know what the, it's like, like the emperor necklace better, the, the emperor necklace yes veer one of you will become emperor after the other is dead marcus and ivanova finish their work which causes an alarm to go off triggering a false report of a hull breach the station crew evacuates the sector as Marcus and the others work on getting the station ready for time travel, Zathras is building something to anchor Sheridan in time, putting a power supply in his suit to amplify the time stabilizer. Ivanova, during this whole scene, notes that, hey, they're trying to steal a station to send back in time a thousand years. And Valen appeared about that time. You think they'd get to meet him? As Marcus and Ivanova talk about Valen, Sheridan materializes in the spacesuit. Sinclair and Sheridan work in the power core to finish their preparation. I want to point out here that as this was going on, I fully expected, when we were first watching this, I fully expected Justin to cotton on to what this what was going to happen in this episode. <laughs> and unless you did and you kept it to yourself, when we were watching it, you were just like, do, 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 do. Maybe you were just hypnotized by Marcus's hair, uh, but there, you gave no indication of of catching on. I was just like, I expected it was the, them just being cute about something. And, no, yeah, it was like there's going to be like this cool reveal about like what I don't know is Vale and a time traveler. Hey, the answer is yes, but like, yeah, it was like it was Chekhov's cute conversation. The, yeah, yeah. Um, so Ivanova rigs the station to fake a reactor overload. Um, which, hey, is what happened in Babylon Squared. Um, but suddenly, B4 is pulled through time. As Zathra stabilizes it, they finally have moved in ahead in time four years to season one. <laughs> However, they will have to readjust their system before they can travel again. Sheridan disappears again, and Sinclair tells them there's a new development. 
B4's commander is pressed by his exo to evacuate, and he orders the distress signal set sent down. Thus starting Babylon Squared. The loop is beginning. Yep. <laughs> yep. As Delenn moves through the station, she ends up jumping in time. She is watching John sleep in his bed on Babylon 5, and she goes to pick up a snow globe that is sitting on his counter. She sees someone enter, and what she sees makes her reply to Chekhov's snow globe, which is that if somebody picks up a snow globe in a scene, it will get smashed. Delenn's vision ends. Sinclair returns from the reactor, but he is visibly aged. Repeated exposure to the time field has aged him. It's why he didn't have Garibaldi come. As he gets closer to his original time, Sinclair will draw closer to death. Sinclair orders Zathras to fix Sheridan's stabilizer, but Zathras will have to scavenge parts off the station. Sinclair goes back to the reactor to finish stabilizing it and orders Marcus and Delenn to stay on the White Star to monitor the situation. Lanier picks up readings. Six or seven ships, which is the evacuation team from Season 1. <laughs> As Athras tries to scrounge for tools, he's captured by station security. He's taken away, and Ivanova reports it on the situation. We then get cuts back and forth between Babylon Squared and this episode. I'm not going to summarize the Babylon Squared bits. Just know it's happening. <laughs> the The cuts are well done. Yeah, yeah the cuts are well done. The major is giving Sinclair and season one Sinclair the same briefing, takes him to see Zathras. Zathras has the... You're the one. Oh, not the one. And, you know, that whole thing. After uh, Babylon 4 CNC is evacuated, Ivanova sneaks in to help preparations there. We get Sheridan's time-stabilized spacesuit flashing in and out, and oh my god, it's all coming together. I feel like, I, I feel the, 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 the terror of Gnosis creeping on in my mind. <laughs> Uh, Zathras gives the space-suited person the time stabilizer before they disappear. As everyone leaves, Sheridan reappears in their staging area. But his time stabilizer now doesn't have any damage. The pillar falls on Zathras again like it did in Season 1. But after Sinclair leaves him, the space-suited figure returns to save him, who is... Delan? Zathras recognizes Delan as... The One. Wait, a lot of people are being called The One through the past 90 minutes of television. I'm getting mm -hmm. confused here. <laughs> Outside, Sinclair tries to warn Garibaldi to watch his back, but the radio can't connect. We then get a cut to that last scene from Babylon Squared, where Sinclair tells Delenn that he tried to warn them, but he failed. It all happened the same. Sinclair says that he'll finish the procedure, then join them on the White Star. Marcus calls him on his bullshit, recognizing that the system isn't automatic. Someone has to pilot the station back in time. Marcus volunteers, but Sinclair tells him that he will, because he always has and he always will. It's already happened. He reveals the information that brought him to Babylon 5, a letter from 900 years ago, in his own handwriting. Delenn confirms this, revealing she also received a letter in that handwriting. I like that Marcus is so immediate. He's like, uh, all due respect, but bullshit. Like, <laughs> no hesitation to call to call out Sinclair on, on bullshit, but very respectfully. It's very, it's very good. Marcus has yeah. some really good moments in this whole episode. Yeah. I also like that he's like totally ready to do like the tragic uh, self-sacrifice bit. Oh my God. He was so ready for it. Yeah. 
Also, then he could have, you know, he could have gone back and met Valen too, which like would be really cool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wouldn't that be wild? <laughs> Sinclair recognizes that if he goes back to their own time, he'll likely die. He wants to choose to live. He says that his whole life has been leading this. He asks for a moment alone with Delenn, John, and Zathras. He asks Zathras who the one is. He says that Delenn is, and Sinclair is, and Sheridan is. All Minbari belief is centered around threes. Three castes, three languages, the nine of the Great Council of three representatives from three castes. As they are three, they are the one. Sinclair is the one who was, Delenn is the one who is, and Sheridan is the one who will be. The beginning, the middle, and the end that creates the next great story. Zathra says that he will stay with Sinclair, as it's his destiny. Delenn and Sheridan give their farewells to Sinclair, and they return to the White Star. They depart and return to their own time and place. The temporal rift closes, shutting that particular window to the past. But Delenn says that it is not the only window. A thousand years ago, human and Minbari souls began to merge. She says that something happened to open that door, and that her change was part of an attempt to rebalance the skills. The device that Delenn had used to become part human was found a thousand years ago. After all, if a human had been found on Babylon 4, they would have never accepted Sinclair. Marcus realizes what this means. A Minbari, not born of Minbari. We then see Sinclair in front of the Crystal House of Cards from Season 1, setting the Triluminary in its place. We get a clip of every time in Season 1 where I was freaking the fuck out over what the hell was up with Sinclair. The Soul Hunter telling Sinclair they were using him, Delenn saying they were right about him, Darun saying he talks like a Minbari. We then see a Minbari fleet close in on Babylon 4 a thousand years ago. Minbari soldiers board and find Zathras. He welcomes them, saying he knew they would come. He shows him to the B4's version of the Sokolo, or at least a fancy hallway, where a Minbari is there with two Vorlons. Outside of their suits. Yes. He welcomes them and presents the station as a gift, as they have a lot of work to do. The Minbari's name? Valen. Fuck, 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 the actual goddamn fuck! <laughs> and I, I love I, the end of that episode so much. Yeah, and I love that Marcus's reaction when he figures it out is like it's a perfect circuit for the audience reaction because he's like, "My God!" <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's 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 good. It's oh my gosh. Yeah, my <sighs> God, he's actually Valen. Holy shit balls! Yeah, it's very very good. I mean, first I want to talk about the episode. We can get into the meta stuff late, later, but mm-hmm. as a conclusion to Sinclair's arc, oh, as opposed yeah. to Michael O'Hare's arc, but as as a conclusion to Sinclair's arc, this I cannot imagine a more perfect circle than mm-hmm. him becoming Valen. Um, it's so good. Everything that was set up in season one, you would think that this was the intention from the first word JMS wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And if you and if you didn't read Lurker's Guide, you might well actually think that. If you had not consumed a whole bunch of supplementary material, you would never know that this was not the original plan of the series from from episode one. 
um, which I think is a real testament to JMS's ability to roll with the punches and build this story uh, as he went while still like holding to his plot. I think it really, I mean, Lord knows we dunk on JMS a lot, Mm -hmm. but he certainly earns every ounce of respect for the way that he constructs the the plot here that leads us up to Sinclair becoming Valen because it's such a tremendous, tremendously satisfying conclusion for Sinclair. And maybe one of like the emotional high points of the series, for me at least. Yeah. And it's it's such a good end to or beginning perhaps to Sinclair's <laughs> arc. Yeah. It's also made all the more meaningful to me, you know, in retrospect, knowing the knowing about O'Hare's mental health struggles and everything that, you know, I, you know, obviously I did not know O'Hare and I do not know JMS, but I like to think that this was as like meaningful a way to like, put such a nice wrap on that arc. I hope that this ending for Sinclair was as meaningful to O'Hare as it is to all of us. Same here. I think it's it's clear from the way that O'Hare talked about the character, if you've watched some of the interviews that he gave about the show, um, and certainly to JMS, that Sinclair was a, very, was a special character to both of them. And uh, I hope that... I, I agree with you. I hope that this conclusion uh, was meaningful to O'Hare and that he 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 felt mm. that it was a respectful way to send uh Sinclair off and for him to to find some some closure with the show. And his his acting as well is also superb in oh, yeah. this episode. It's oh, yeah. absolutely stellar. It's it's like you can see that Sinclair has changed in the the year and a half since we saw him. But you like, but it's still notably the. It's like it's still recognizably the same person, but you can see that he's grown so much. Yeah, and you know, there's there's this like inner calm. It's very he's very zen. (laughs) I suspect that not having to do the show all the time, the fact that it's a couple years later, and he hasn't been doing any TV since then. In the interim, I suspect he's in a much better place mentally when he filmed World Without End. Much more collected and much less like burned out by doing the show regularly. So he's, I, I, my sense is that he is much healthier uh, mentally when he does these episodes. And you, you, it reads that way. He feels much more uh, weighty. Yeah, it's he feels more grounded and you know that comes across well more, for I'm the more character. Gravitas. Yeah. Yeah. I have a comparison I want to make, but it's a spoiler. All right. Well, listeners. You know, no, let's do the, let's do this. Let's do this. Well, we've um, never we've never shied away from doing spoilers. We just Yeah. Yeah, so so I'm going to reference a, a speech that is I'm going to uh I'm going to reference the end of season 3. If you don't want to have that con- or if you don't want to hear that conversation, if you're trying to play into the bit i like i'm a couple episodes ahead of this now but um at the end of season three uh the ending monologue of the season is given by jakar where he talks about periods that define us that they're that we are either in moments of transition or moments of revelation 
um, and that it is the these moment or these long periods of transition that await us of moments of ch- that change us. Season one Sinclair feels like somebody who's restless because he is in a period of transition. Mm-hmm. He is in between points in his life. Babylon five is not where he's supposed to be. Yeah. He's waiting for something bigger. He's perhaps even seeking. Yeah. He has, at the start of this episode, the moment of revelation where he has everything revealed to him. Where he has his life's plan revealed to him and what he's supposed to be doing. What he's been training for. What he's been preparing for. He finally knows his destiny. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, like, having just watched uh, Zahadoom last week it, it's it's sticking in my mind and it, it just i'm not sure you know it's not something that's probably intended with sinclair but it, it's something that i immediately associate with the character yeah and just broadly this episode is really linked to the end of uh the season that there were there are a few things that really we have the the snow globe scene which we yeah. get in five episodes four episodes something along those lines yeah yeah, it's going to be in five episodes. Yeah, so we we get the, you know, that pays off really fast. The other thing that I feel like, you know, really, really kicks you on a rewatch, thinking about the end of season three, is when Delenn asks John whether he trusts her, and he says, with his life, and then and then we get to Zahadoom. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where that trust is tested, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. I, I I also um kind of want to talk about you know where John time skips forward and sees their future together, um and sees that they are together, mm-hmm. and I feel like in the rest of the episodes of the season he's a lot more confident around Delenn. Yeah. Maybe knowing knowing that, you know, it'll all work out okay. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. D- define okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they have a son named David. He's going to get some. So he's, it's going to work out that okay. Apparently his cooking wasn't that bad. Um, one thing I wanted to... Or maybe, maybe he just made up for it in other ways. Maybe. I don't know. One thing I wanted to, to mention, this was the thing that always confused and irritated me was the triluminary. What? Where? How? What? Paradox? Uh, it's not a paradox, it turns out. It's a deus ex machina, which is so much better. Um, <laughs> or in this case, a deus ex epsilon four. Um, yeah, apparently they're just from the great machine. Um, deus ex yeah. great machina? Yeah, great macking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> I shouldn't be as amused by that as I am, but that's really good. <laughs> oh, Deus Ex, great macking. Okay. Um. Yeah. Apparently, they were. That's where Delenn got them originally. I don't remember the ordering, but they originally come from the Great Machine. Yeah. So Sin- Sinclair, I guess, gets the gets the yeah, Crystal right. House Sinclair. of Cards. From the Great Machine, and then yeah. it Delen because I I initially wondered whether it's just the same thing that just circles around in time and has, was never made. Yeah, no, but it's not. <laughs> just it's, exists. It's, it's from the Great Machine, 
and Sinclair takes it into the past, and then Delenn gets it from uh, from Valen. And that's why the triluminary glows for Sinclair, is that it was built to glow for Sinclair, and everyone carrying his DNA. Yeah, which also, I think it's also buckwild that uh, Delenn is one of his descendants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why she was able to use the machine. Yeah, the triluminary, yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff there. Uh maybe. I don't know. Well it's it's interesting because I mean Justin was saying that they hate time travel, right? I mean, it's mostly just like I, I think time travel stories are fun. They're often not worth the headache. Yeah, it, it's basically like time travel stories are fun. I think like if you keep them simple and clean, they are like they're better. But like there is eventually a point where it just like Oh my god, you're you're trying to be too cute about it or whatever. Yeah. And it it just like I like and I and I and I cannot give you a specific example like of like this is the, like this is an example of like something where it's just like this episode's a great example where Yeah. I think yeah. the time loop of Sinclair goes back in time to be Valen and leaves the triluminary for Delenn. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think as a time travel story that works really well. I think Sheridan bip and bopping around through the time and future and all that stuff. I think that's a little too cute for me. For me, I I don't mind that. Like I I think that's like a good narrative device to like show what's ahead and stuff. But there's also like Sheridan disappears and he's just unconscious for like 15 minutes out of the episode uh, out of part two. Like they don't ever like put anything. He's just gone yeah. until they can build a new thing. And then there's a little too much. I think like card shuffling with who's in the suit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where it's just like, I suspect that it's one of those things where there were a couple of short scenes that got cut perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I mostly mean, I think it works, but I think that it it is a case where the best part of this episode is how good that time loop is with Valen. And the part that is the weakest is trying to keep track of, as your summary makes clear, who's in what time frame at any given time. Like, if you have to tense the Coppolas of, like, so, okay, Sheridan at T1 is doing this, and Delenn at T2 is doing this, and, you know, now Sheridan is back at T2, and Delenn is at T3, and, like, I think that gets a little bit messy and a little too much. And I think a lot of TV shows fall prey to that, like, if it's confusing... It's clever, like uh, Westworld. Spoilers. <laughs> if you're a Westworld, if you haven't watched Westworld, I don't, I don't care that much. Uh, don't listen for the next thirty seconds while I complain about how badly it handles time. Season two is confusing as fuck. Yeah, they dick around with timelines like a lot, and they do it really well. In I think it's season one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they do it really well in season one, and then really poorly in season two. And it's just like, guys, like, you did it fine the first time. Don't try and... There's like four timelines in season two, and I can't keep any of them straight. Yeah. So the thing that I was going to say about time travel is that... So I I generally specifically hate predestination paradoxes. I feel like they rarely work well, and they always feel kind of lazy to me. Um, this is like the one predestination paradox that I love, And it's for a very specific reason, which is that so much of the storytelling 
of B5 has to do with the cyclical nature of narrative that, you know, we have the the cyclical struggle between light and dark that comes back every thousand years yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. Like there's this, you know, the, th- the thing of like that everything's happened before and everything will happen again. Mm-hmm. This is just taking that to another slightly more literal level. Like that if you've got a show that has such a reliance on the concept of a cyclical narrative, of course there's going to be a predestination paradox. Why not? Yeah, yeah. I love that Garibaldi wasn't in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 there like he's there to have an emotional beat which I think works with him. Yeah. Um like it, it's a good emotional beat. Um and I think it's a little bit interesting just like how they cuz he doesn't really have much to do in there and, Yeah. Except for being upset that that uh Sinclair ditched him. I feel like the acting is overall superb in this episode. Yeah, it's a very high caliber for, I mean, even by this show's standard, which is unusually high for, you know, a sci-fi show in the 90s is very high. Uh, This show really kills it. I do have one beef with the episode, which is that both times we're on Midbar, the music choices there are... Oofa doofa. They're right out of somebody's Legend of the Five Rigs uh, RPG session. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a good way at yeah, all. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It really does sound like somebody queued up their uh, Oriental Adventures soundtrack, uh, like s- sample mix. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a, like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Also, I want to point out that um, Ruthen. The, the Minbari priest who Sinclair starts off the episode with. Yeah. The actor's name is Time Winters. Not wow. Tim Winter- which is the... Not Tim Winters. His Win- name is Time... It's Time Winters. Wow. Could not wow. be which, better named for this episode than Time Winters. Yeah, that almost feels like a, a pseudonym. Fucking, <laughs> yeah, no, I, like, I, that, that, I don't know. That's probably a... Um, like, that's got to be a pseudonym or, like, a stage name. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. Okay, I just checked it. Yeah, um, his name is, like, his full name is Timothy. Like, his, his his birth name is Timothy. But I know that, like, there's a rule that, like, you can't have, I think it's SAG says you can't have two people with the same registered That's name. why you have all these weird names in Hollywood, because you, you know, you have two Bob Evans, you know. Or you'll have somebody who, like. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was already a Samuel Jackson. Yeah. But yeah, stuff like that. Or, or Richard Dean Anderson. Like, it's why people use their middle names. Um, but yeah, so so apparently he chose Ty, which honestly, that's a flex there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and he's... And a, okay, so this is... We're going on this because I looked up his Wikipedia page. He's in a production of Nosferatu, uh, which is coming out this year. With Doug Jones as Count Orlock. Oh my god. Wow. Which wow. I did not know this existed before like three minutes ago, and now I am so ready for that. I'm on board with that. Yeah. Okay, we should actually go back to Babylon 5 because otherwise I'm not going to be done with this. Alongside alongside your note that the soundtrack for Mimbar is uh bad, which I agree with. The rest of the aesthetics are very charming. And it's nice to, you know, see Mimbar, which is like built out of crystal, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
the opening shot where we get like the cityscape and then like that that opening shot where we get to see like that temple or what or that complex with the huge like stained glass yeah. window the that any western european church would uh kill a bitch yeah <laughs> i really at some point want to have a conversation with somebody about the minbari cuz they're a weird example they're a really good example of like i don't know like they 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 toe that line between is this problematic is it not a little bit of both and i i'm really interested to get a take from somebody that is more knowledgeable on that subject than than we are cuz there's times when i love the world building behind the minbari and then there's times like the music in that scene uh or some uh, some of the costuming choices in the first season where it feels a little a little oofa doofa the the samurai aesthetic yeah yeah well i think we'll get to bring that up back on uh, gray 17 yeah. yeah yeah for sure i don't know i i feel like i got all my good bits out oh yeah um jakar despite having n- literally no lines in this episode gets a great moment where he gets to choke a bitch <laughs> and by bitch i mean londo and he looks gets to look good doing it because who doesn't look good in a sassy eye patch yeah i i do want to like actually point out the costuming here because it's cool because narn don't have ears mm-hmm. so you need a way to like secure a um eye patch um yes yeah, so- for somebody who doesn't have ears and so it's it's a cool like because you have to think about that like sort of accessibility um it it, it creates a really good uh like it creates a cool and interesting look yeah yeah and he looks rough Be- too besides you know a sexy eye patch mm-hmm. he, he he looks like he's been through some shit uh, yeah and and like the that eye patch almost looks like it's been like handmade or something or because it it doesn't look like a particularly medical it looks yeah. like something that somebody has fastened themselves yeah um, it doesn't look like it's something he, he bought at the local cvs and threw on it definitely looks like it's something he tore off of the bottom of his t-shirt and yeah. wrapped around his head it's leather so. too which is really yeah, which um really there with I, so I so it doesn't breathe very well <laughs> but that gets real stanky and sweaty I mean, he's got scales, so who knows? Does yeah. he have scales? Or, or he's a lizard boy. I don't know. Repto mammal? Um, I, don't, I don't think he, <laughs> like, I don't know. Do, do, like, I mean, like, they wear gloves all the time, and um, they wear a lot of leather. I don't think that, like, Narn sweat. Oh, so so speaking of that scene, Justin. Which apparently I, I like, I watched blind. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't notice a huge fucking eye. <laughs> I, I was gonna, I was gonna actually say, Justin, do you remember Lady Merla's prophecy? There's a thing about an eye there. Yeah. So, so the first part is that you must save the eye that does not see. You must not kill the one who is already dead, and you must surrender to your greatest fear, knowing that it will destroy you. If at the end you have failed with all the others, this is your final chance for redemption. Do we think that this is the last piece? I think it is. I think the first one that I, I'm wondering if that might be Jakar, because uh, well, obviously he's not there. Though I'm going to be interested to see like 
what that means, because it's going to be the eye that does not see. I'm very worried for my boy Jakar, considering that I've seen the end of season three. Yep. Um, and he is, still has two eyes. <laughs> uh, I just looked this up. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yes, you should be. <laughs> no, fear. I just Googled this, and Narns are not lizards. They're marsupials. Pouch. <gasps> Pouch, brother. Yeah, according to the official wiki, to not the official wiki, but a- according to the wiki, uh, they they have more in common with cats than they do with lizards. Wild. They are, but they are. Uh, yeah, the the whole lizard thing is just a, a appearance, like skin appearance. They are, in fact, uh, closer to mars to earth marsupials than they are lizards. Is Jakara possum? He's got a pouch, and were he to mate with a female Narn, which he doesn't seem to ever do, which is interesting. <laughs> The female would conceive them, and then they would transfer them to his pouch, where they would grow to full size. Interesting. So, yes, he has a pouch. And it doesn't look like a sweat, though, because, like, like Jakar's always wearing those leather gloves. Maybe maybe the metabolism is just such that he's cold all the time. Yeah. Well, we know they come from a, cold, a colder planet, so. They're just hairless marsupials. Apparently. Learn something new every day. Oh, interesting. Uh, they're thick leathery epidermis not only manages both the internal and external body temperature, but also stores quantities of fluid and energy that allows Narn to hibernate for days at a time. It allows them to regulate their body's water, which means that alcoholic intoxicants have little or no effect on them, except in (laughs) considerable quantities, unless it's Yuhu. So yeah, I imagine they don't sweat if they control, if they have a thick leathery skin and they... Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it doesn't get stanky. There you go. In answer to the question from five minutes ago about whether his eye patch gets smelly from wearing it too long, no, because he's a thick, leathery skinned marsupial. (laughs) The more you know. That's uh, pretty cool, actually. Woohoo, xenobiology. There, the, I'm like I'm bouncing around because there's like this is it's 90 minutes of television that is like there's so much in it. Um, oh, that's so, dangerous to know. I'm scared now. No, this this came from the official Babylon Five magazine, and I had a moment there where I thought like this was going to be a thing I'd have to track down, but there was only. Um, I'm not clear on how many issues there were. At least three, because this comes from the third issue. Volume 1, issue 3, November 1997. Hey, folks, if you have access to the Babylon, if, like, scanned the Babylon 5 uh, magazines, we will, uh, I will place a bounty on them. <laughs> uh, DM me uh, Justin writes. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, let's, uh, that, that's, that's bold and exciting knowledge to have but yeah so how do you feel about that prophecy um a little worried a little worried um i don't think that londa has been paying a lot of attention to them do you I, think that's the thing do I, you think londa is going to hell or not i think londa is going to hell uh, because all fascists belong in hell true or, or or colonizers or imperialists i i think that so i'm gonna go on a little tangent about prophecy here and we're just gonna wing this because um I like prophecy as a fictional tool. I think it's fun because it's something that it's an accepted fictional trope that, um, and it has been for thousands of years that um, prophecy 
can either be true or false, or you can make it true. Um, and that all depends on your story. I think that Londo is going to try and actually, like, follow this prophecy. Like, he is going to try. He's going to recognize that he's got a point where he can get out of this, where he can save himself. And it's going to be a point where he can't. Like, he has the choice. He can do it. But there's a price associated with it that he can't afford to pay or can't live with himself to pay. Which is how which is how you do good story. It's uh, those are the dramatic choices, the ironies that make us come back to fiction. Um, so I'm very interested in it. I'm looking forward to see where they go and very worried. Yeah, we haven't seen it at the end of season three. I, I, I there hasn't been an eye that's an admitted an important thing yet. Yeah, there. but we're but we're potentially seeing the last one here. The you must surrender yeah, to your exactly. greatest fear, knowing that it will destroy yeah, you. That, yeah, we've yeah that we're we're potentially seeing that one. We know that Lando fear he's had that vision of you know him and Jakar choking each other to death since season one. He's had that vision of his own death. Yeah, and the actual revelation of like the circumstances for it is why like it, it, it fits in perfectly with that is is why is why prophecy or doing a good flash forward and giving yourself a enough narrative ambiguity to frame that scene the way you want it is such a good move. When it's a it's it's initially related is just I see myself in Chicago. We are old and it's 20 years from now. We are choking each other. Then we get a little bit more information on that in season two, I think. We get to see yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we don't get to know the full context of it. We don't know how this happens. And now we get to see like we we still don't know like why is Jakar there on Centauri? Mm-hmm. And why does uh, and why does Londo refer to him as my old friend too? Yeah, I mean that's just that's just enemies to lovers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good scene though, and I think it deserves to be highlighted. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. It is. Yeah, I mean th- this is the this is the apex. This is what we're building to in terms of like. This is this is what JMS has been building to in the this is where we get the 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 gnosis like the the revelation of everything here so much I mean, pays I could, off I could even get I can get biblical I can be it's the revelation hmm. um <laughs> the the other thing I find really interesting to think about is not just where Sheridan skips forward in time but when Delenn skips forward in time and sees the snow globe scene. So she's got to know what's coming. She's got to know who comes back at the end of season three. And she doesn't say anything. Does she? Or does she just see a figure come back? Yeah, we don't know. We we see enough that we see enough that it's going to, I mean, she, that she's going to drop that. She, she sees who it is and in shock, Drops the snow globe. Yeah, yeah. So she does. That's kind of a dick move. Yeah, maybe she's. I mean, like, is she hoping that that won't actually come to pass, or, yeah. or what? Like, who knows? But that on the heels of the, you know, do you trust me, John? Yes, with my life. Woof. Yeah. 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 
Okay, so I'm going to go on like a, a little thing here. There's there's a a, a word I might want to like I I could associate with this episode or this two parter. It's apocalyptic. Yeah, I could see, but in the biblical term of apocalyptic. Yeah, I could see this. I could see that. Like this is the point where like there's so much that we learn from this. It, it, it's, I mean the 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 four parter the the quadriptic. Uh, the the break from Earth, like that's the halfway point of the series. But we're gonna do this. We're, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make this analogy. Let's do this. Babylon Five leaving Earth is the breaking of the Fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But War Without End is the Battle of Helm's Deep. Like this is the point where the Ooh. story is making well, the pivot. Well, in that case, in that case, when when do we get the the fall of the Balrog, Justin? <laughs> Yeah, we're doing this out of order, but <laughs> we're getting to that. We'll get there in three episodes. Yeah, yeah. dang. Yeah, no, I, I don't hate that analogy at all. The timeline is getting a little fluxy, uh, fluxy with events here, but like this um, is the like sort well, of this is the since, pivot where we're going to be. Uh, I was not at all influenced by uh, the Lord of the Rings or J.R. Tolkien, and any coincidences in plot or uh, the names of things is completely coincidental. Please, uh, please the Rangers, do not sue me, Tolkien Estate. Please. The Rangers were not named after Tolkien's Rangers. Uh, I played a lot of D&D, and Zahadum has nothing to do with Kazadum. That's, that's foolish. Why would you think that? I'm going to do that bit every time. I'm going to do it every time. <laughs> I don't care. I do like that Like when we see Sinclair, he doesn't look ambassadorial. He's a ranger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he, he's, like, he's like, even got the pick. He's completely abandoned this whole farce of being an ambassador. He's okay, like, yeah. No, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a free, I'm a terrorist, freedom fighter, religious cool figure. Cape. Yeah, with a beautiful cape. Like, there's a, there's a funny bit of JMS speaks where somebody asks, like, well, why did, like, why wasn't like Sinclair recalled to Earth? And like, and Jamis' response is, "I'm pretty sure that any call Earth makes to Midbar is put on hold." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just somebody speaking into the phone. Boop, boop, boop. Yeah, and also, would Sinclair have answered it? No, Sinclair would whatever, have told him no. whatever the um, whatever the Mimbari version of uh, hold music is. Yeah, the sound of crystals. Uh, Crystal, crystals playing the girl from Ethnema. Yeah. Blink, 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 blink. Do you think we can get... Gosh. Uh, what's his name? The guy who does all... Uh, think we could hire the guy from Incompetech to do uh, a cover of Girl from Ipanema on, uh, with nothing but like a handful of quartz and a, and a bunch... And, a, and like a jug of water. And a wind chime. And a wind chime. Yes. Very important God. wind chime. No, I'm serious. Do you think he'd do it? Minbari, do you think Minbari have elevators? <laughs> no, they're I'm too sure. advanced. No, they use like gravity tubes or something stupid. Like some vastly over-engineered Oh god, solution. it's like Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> Going through tubes. <laughs> okay, speaking speaking of tubes that don't make sense. This is one nitpick that I have with this with this particular episode. I know okay. where you're going with this. I have this, okay. every time I watch this episode, I have the same thought. Okay, so the hole in the white star is in the floor. The hole in the station is in the floor. 
It's artificial gravity into spin gravity. That's gotta be. That's yeah. just gotta be disorienting as fuck. Like, well, so like it'd be one thing if they they like turned the white star gravity like in that room on its head or something like that, and they were climbing in maybe. through the ceiling. But no, they're climbing in through the floor. And they show and them doing emerging it too. from the floor. Well, we never we never we never see the 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 white star end of it. Pretty sure we do. Yeah, pretty sure we do. No, we, like I think we only see the we only see the the bef- the before end of it. So my thought, my thought is you just turn off the gravity in the in the white star room. I'm pretty sure we see both ends because I rem- I remember thinking this every time that this is a dumb way to do it, and I remember thinking, does it? Why don't they just cannonball? Because I feel like <laughs> the, mom- sure they the momentum like, I- would carry you out the other side. You'd pop out. And just sort of be like, do, and you just hover for a second, and then you could just like the, grab and then something, you, and then you go down at an angle. Like the only room we see on the white star is like the briefing room, like a little engineering space where they're like initially doing plot explanations on the time stabilizer. I thought we saw a hallway for like two minutes, or like, like for like see thirty bridge, seconds. No, we don't we see do, the hall. We do. We never see the hall. There's hole. that hall. There's the generic hall with the glowing. There's the with the glowing hall. lights down the side, and there's a. And then they show a, a ladder going up into the ceiling of the generic hall. Wait, it's going up into the ceiling? But we don't ever see the hole. We don't ever see the hole. Hole, H-O-L-E. I'm pretty sure that they show that, like, they're going up into the ceiling in that well, hall. Well, in that, in that case, it's okay if they're going up through the ceiling. But that's also not the orientation of the white star on that, the, on that is, station. Is it the ceiling? No, it must be the floor. Because yeah. I, I remember, maybe I'm thinking of a different scene then. Because I do I'm, remember that it's Florida, it's Florida hull. And yeah, I remember thinking they they must be jumping down into there. And like and at at some point, like at some point, there's got to be a gravity switch. Yeah, it's dumb. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we don't see the hole from the uh, from the white star end. But like my my thing is just like you just turn off the gravity in the white star room. Yeah, that would be the sensible option. But I I'm assuming that they yeah. would not do that. I've already watched this episode to, within the last 48 hours. I'm not going to watch it again, uh, listeners. If you uh, if you can, if you can correct us when this comes out in like no, three years, November, November or wherever. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we need to get through. The one, the one last thing for me is, you know, speaking of the excellent acting in this, I definitely want to call out Ivanova's or Claudia Christian's acting in the distress signal from the alternate future. That mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like she, the, the acting on that I always feel like is absolutely stellar. You know, especially for a scene where it's just her, and and also the real answer to the costuming of why Sinclair has gray hair and a scar is because they put that on future Sinclair in B squared to differentiate him, and they had to make it match. <laughs> Which I'm fine yeah. with. Like, they, they did it in a yeah. fun way, which was like, okay, cool. Like, he just shows us the scar and they just age him up because time radiation. I love that. Oh, you know what? If we're going to talk about acting, we got to talk about Tim Choate. Because this episode doesn't, or not, like, I don't think a third of these, the comedic beats in this episode work without Tim Choate just fucking nailing it as his Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's instantly, like, just, an immediate i'm not gonna say one hit wonder but it's just like it's an immediate just like 
all-timer performance of a guest star. And and also gives the like beats of comedic relief that the episode honestly needs. Like, you know, it's a really intense episode and having those, you know, little comedic bits of Zathras, you know, being Zathras are are really fantastic and I think help like balance some of the tension. It's I think it's um like I do I, it, it's a fun episode because for a show that is like about a coming war, I think it's a really smart move to make such a pivotal episode not about a battle. Yeah. Like there there's there's this shadow there's the shadow fighters which they just pew 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 pew. But like for like most of the episode, nobody fights, nobody they're just doing around sneaky shit. They're trying to steal a space station. Time heist. Um, time, heist. time heist. I was like, yeah, and like the whole name "War Without End" is so foreboding. Yeah. If you t- if you told me like an episode was called "War Without End" and it was involved with time travel, I was gonna be like, is this gonna be like a weird time loop? Would not have gone well. There's there are only there is only one uh, Groundhog Day episode of TV that we stand, and that is "Window of Opportunity" from SG. I was I was gonna say, I was gonna say that one's so good. In the middle of my backswing, <laughs> but yeah, overall, this is like for for a an episode and uh, a plot point that is that I'll be honest that you never that both of you never sh- stopped off. Like it, it's like I knew it was coming. I was like it was being built up. Surprisingly, it hit. Like, like it's, there's the, they think of like knowing something is coming and then like, not like, okay, maybe this wasn't what it was. It's a moment, it's a reveal that like, looking back, you can see it like, okay, it's there. And it's, I think it's sufficiently, like, it's sufficiently dramatic. It's something that you don't see coming, but it's big. Yeah. And I, and it's like, sometimes like with a big, like reveal like that. You either try to undersell it, or it's just not as big as you think it is in the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it's sufficiently both. Like Zathras explaining the one is just a perfect moment. Yeah, absolutely, because it 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 so perfectly works with what's established in the show's mythology. What it makes this wonderful is just sort of like compl- it's a closed loop. That's what it hmm. is. Yeah, I have a question, or I have a theory. Hit me. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Sheridan is the one who will be at some point. Sheridan is going to is going to be barring himself. Interesting. Interesting. I look forward to being proven wrong by this, but that's just that's my thought because two out of the three have done. Well, and uh, and you've seen to the end of season three at this point. Yes, but not to the start of season four. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that Jude and I, prior to <laughs> War Without End and Zahajum, I mean, neither of us made any secret of the fact that they were big episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, you can guess from it being a season finale and a two-parter, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, hopefully, we did a pretty good job of keeping you spoiler-free for those two. Yeah, I mean, there there wasn't ever, there wasn't ever anything like like details given it was just like the the importance of which was touched upon um which i mean yeah i I think for like looking at this from like say a historiographical 
perspective. Um, like for for this being sort of like you know sci-fi's first you know big thing, I think it's like you had to sell like you had to sell this this big, and I th- and I think that works. Any closing thoughts? For this being, I'm not gonna say the climax of your show, but this is sort of like the point where you like. I don't want to call season one and two just all rising action. They are though, because it's not. It's not. It's like it's it's a. But this is the point where we're getting like. This is the point where it's just like I'm gonna. I was gonna say from here on out, it's all gas and no brakes. But next time, listeners, we're gonna be watching walkabout and gray 17 is missing (laughs) which is the definition of breaks (laughs) yeah which um there's a reason we're only recording one episode tonight um because if we tried to record that after doing this i don't think any of us would be sane afterwards (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think uh yeah no i i it it hits well it's good it's a it's a one of the best episodes episode blocks in the run of the show and it shows uh it there's very little to complain about with this episode and there's very few episodes in the show's run that can compare and it's such a good it's such a good send-off for sinclair and for o'hare yeah yeah absolutely it feels like that like this is the negotiated end to it and it's treating with the proper amount of respect and gravity and and Written so seamlessly that you know, if you didn't know that this wasn't the plan originally, you couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, next time, like I said, we're going to be doing Walkabout and Grey 17 is Missing. It's probably going to be a lot lighter than what we did here tonight. I don't know. I'm going to say some really mean things about Franklin. Uh, I don't know how <laughs> light that's going to be. Yeah, we we just did two hours and there was like no Franklin bashing. So there was no Franklin. Uh, yeah, there was no Franklin. Uh, he's he's off dealing with his own shit right now. Uh, listeners, uh, we have we want to thank you for sticking with us through this and uh, that you've hit this point of the series with us. Until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.